How is everyone? Awake and ready. How feels everyone? Awake and ready. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father. Divine, Mother, Divine Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Great Masters, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Guru, Paramahansa Yoganandaji, Saints of all religions, we humbly bow to you all. Beloved Lord, show us how to reach Thee. Show us that we are already one with Thee. And that everyone and everything is part of thy great consciousness. Om peace. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Please be seated. So this is our last class for this year's Inner Renewal Week. And if you re can recall all the way back to Monday, uh, which becomes a little difficult, um, Monday we started with the vision of what was Master's mission and why did he come to the West at this time? Tuesday, then we began talking about the different paths to self-realization. Tuesday, we talked about the social path and building communities, the social path to self-realization. Wednesday, we talked about uh, the active path, service as a means to self-realization. And I know some of our dear friends from the East Coast uh, came nice later. to see you. Nice to see you. They're part of our meditation group in New York. Um, the classes have all been recorded, so you can catch up where you missed. Um, so Thursday, we didn't have a class. And then today's class is going to be the inward path to self-realization, the meditative arts, and discipleship. And all in all, it covers really um, pretty broad spectrum of what our great, great master brought to us and to the world. Okay. This first song that we like to sing for you this morning, uh, Swami wrote it as uh, he was inspired by um, a visit to Egypt, and it's called In the Temple of Isis, and Isis is another aspect of Divine Mother. Awake the day, Mother. Come. 
So, as Davy said, today we're going to talk about the inward path, the meditative arts. And really the whole week is one composite whole, because even though we're going to talk very clearly about how withdrawing the energy and lifting it up is the essence of the spiritual path, nonetheless, most of us don't spend 18 hours a day in meditation. And, well, Sam looked at me like, <laughs> you don't? Yeah. Was that implying, but I do? <laughs> no. Okay. Just want to get this clear. But obviously, we spend most of our time in activity, and most of our energy goes in activity. And to be honest, most of the things that draw us into delusion are when we're awake and active. And therefore, unless we combine all of these into one seamless whole, we're going to have, as Master said, holes in the bucket. And no matter how much milk we milk from our, our meditation practices, if we have holes in the bucket, it's going to leak out. And so we have to work to close those holes, and I'll talk much more specifically about that. But let's talk now about the um, process of meditation, the meditative arts. In essence, it is this. The whole of the meditative practice is to still the mind, withdraw the energy, and bring the energy up through the chakras to the higher center, and particularly to this center, the katusta. And when we do that, we begin to experience 
a connection as that beautiful song we started with, still your mind if you want to pray. Well, how do you still your mind? Well, the meditative arts help with that. Still your heart if you want to pray. That means still the desires that draw us outward. How do you do that? Meditative arts help us. And let me say the meditative arts are the withdrawal of energy and the upliftment of energy. Now, why is this important and why is it needed? Well, because when God created the world, he created it with the, one might say, the motif of duality. So as the way Lahiri Mahashaya described it, he said that God in his resting state is pure intelligent, joyful prana. In his dynamic or outward state, he takes a little part of his consciousness and begins to vibrate it. And that vibration between, a vibration is always a polarity. And so that polarity is expressed in many, many different ways. It's expressed as positive and negative call it positive and negative magnetism. So the very structure of the universe, the atom, the, the uh, nucleus of the atom is positively charged. The, uh, the electron uh, is negatively charged. And those two polarities, uh, to, to visualize that, remember it's all energy, but to visualize it, imagine, uh, beach ball, about, you know, however big a beach ball is. That's the nucleus of the atom. Now imagine energy field, but we think in terms, especially those of us who grew up in school where you had the little nucleus with the circles around it, you know, we think in that term, but really it's an energy cloud that surrounds it. But here we have a beach ball Think of that energy cloud as being as, as big around as the edges of a football stadium. And you're standing in the center with the beach ball of the nucleus. Everything else is space. Everything else is empty. Everything else is, one might say, the emptiness between the negative and positive charges. But the whole universe is held together by this active prana that is activated through polarity and we call om that energy or amen or amen. So different religions refer to it in different ways, but that active energy polarized is what manifests creation. Now as that energy comes into us, it comes in in a particular way. And Master has helped us not only understand this, but work with it. He said that this is the mouth of God, the Madala Ablangata. And when the energy comes into our body, it enters. So think of the whole universe as just a vast sea of dynamic, intelligent, throbbing energy. 
it's on a subtle level so we don't perceive it with our senses, but just vibrate with that and then feel that some of that enters in at the medulla and comes down to animate your body, to animate the cells of your body, to animate the processes of your body. Master said that we couldn't live a single second without that intelligent energy which is united with God. Remember, it's just an extension of God. It's the God in his still form being God in the active form or us at night in deep sleep having a dream. And so we create a creation out of consciousness. And, and Master said that's the reason, spiritual reason we dream at night is to understand how God creates the universe. And so he just projects the consciousness of the universe out. But here we have the energy coming in. Now, Master said that in the typical person, the normal person, that energy comes in through the medulla and then descends down the spine, down and projects outward. And that's what gives the appearance of reality. So the energy comes in and, and descends and spreads out. So that movement of downward and outward of prana, that's what keeps creation alive. Now, that's wonderful, except you and I are trying to get out of creation. We're trying to consciously withdraw. We're trying, because as long as we're in that outward projecting form, we aren't united. Lahiri said only 1% of God's consciousness goes into the creation. So we're trying to get back to our original state with the other 99%. And so most people aren't interested in that. You know, they think, what fun is that? <laughs> well, they're still deriving their happiness from the downward and outward projection of energy. But when we get to the point where we want to reverse that, where we want to reunite with God, then we come consciously on a spiritual path. So we begin with the spiritual path by working with that prana. But prana is relatively difficult to work with because we don't perceive it with our senses. We don't, you know, if Master said uh, to us, the whole of the spiritual path is just control your prana. That's all you need. Well, all right. Most people wouldn't get very far with that teaching. Well, fortunately, there are two other links to this. I'll talk about each of them a little more deeply, but let me give you the other links. So when that prana comes in and descends down the spine, it also has another, one might say, polarity. So think of the central spine, the shishumna. We're not talking here about our physical spine, but the physical spine is an outward expression of this, of this whole manifestation, way of manifestation. But so think of the physical, the center of the spine being the shishumna, where that absolute stillness lies. And then outside, just like the atoms are moving around, right? In that soccer stadium, outside of that central spine, there's a movement of energy that circles around up, 
a channel called the pingala, the irda, I mean, and down a channel called the pingala. So, so the prana is here, it descends, and it has this polarity of the movement around the spine. And that polarity is keeping us outward. Now, as we know from Kriya Yoga, those of you who are initiated or some will be initiated tonight, what we're trying to do is to bring that polarity of the movement of the energy in the outer irda and the pingala, we're trying to bring it into the shishumna and up and bring all of the energy up to the point between the eyebrows. Now there's another polarity because that downward moving flow has a very strong energy to it. Master said, quoting the Bible, there's the concept of Satan. And Satan is supposed to be an angel. And in the Bible it says essentially Satan uh, came down with a lightning-like flow. That's the energy going down the spine and creating a polarity at the bottom of the spine called the Kundalini. And so think of that, you know, Satan, Satan is a difficult concept for most people to accept. C.S. Lewis said that the way that Satan works with this is he gives everyone the picture of himself as being a being that's red with uh, goat's feet and horns. And everybody who's a thinking person says, well, that's ridiculous. Therefore, the concept of Satan is ridiculous. Well, that's just delusion because delusion is a conscious force because without that conscious force drawing the energy down, you don't have the polarity. And when you don't have the polarity, you go back into singularity, into union with God. So if he's going to have an outward creation, he has to maintain that polarity. But as I say, you and I are trying to get out of that. And therefore, we're trying to withdraw the energy from the irda and the pingala and bring it up to the through the deep spine, the shishumna, to the point here and create a very, very powerful magnetic field here. And as we do that, to the extent we can do that, that positive magnetism draws up the negative magnetism until eventually it all comes together into unity and then we experience samadhi or Christ consciousness. So that's the flow of prana. But as I say, prana is not easy to get your hands on it. Uh, Swami had a brother monk, Norman. Now, Norman, master called him my giant. Norman was about, I don't know, 6'4 and 280 pounds of all muscle. And um, one time, um, Norman was complaining about delusion. He said, if only I could get my hands on it. <laughs> a group of us went to visit Norman. He started a community too in Southern California by Santa Barbara. A group of people from Ananda went to visit them. And it was quite striking because, you know, in the Gita it says all of Krishna's soldiers look like, look like Krishna. 
Well, all of Swami's disciples kind of looked like him, you know, sort of the same size, the same vibration. Normans, they were all about 6'3 and big. And they would go out sailing and uh, they, they were, uh, they came from the Viking line of, <laughs> of masters, masters family. And I, I don't know, I think we came from the Atlantean side. And, and so we just had a slightly different vibration and, and outward look. Anyway, coming back. <laughs> so we're working with this subtle prana, but as I say, prana is hard to get your hands on. Fortunately, prana is linked to the breath. And so every time, remember I said that movement up and down, the ira and the pingala, Every time that movement comes up, we take an inhalation. And every time it goes down, we exhale. Inhale, exhale. Inhale, exhale. When we come into a human body, the first act of independence is to take a breath. And that starts that cycle. And when we take a breath, it starts the connection of our consciousness outwardly and then the brain goes and so on and when we stop with our last exhalation we exit the body so we think well that's the breath but really it's the prana connected to this physical form and so that movement of energy is constant it goes all the time from the moment you were born until the moment you die. And Master said that that, I don't know, that, that rhythm, the breath and the pranic breath are what hold our consciousness to this particular body. And so we're trying, one of the things that we're trying to do, remember we're trying to dissolve the ego. Well, being in a physical body is like the grossest expression of the ego. And so one of the things we're trying to do is get more subtle and higher vibration expressions of the ego. That would be the astral plane. It's either heaven or hell, depending on where the location of your energy is, up or down, in, in the chakra system. So if it's very... I don't know, very materialistic, and the ego is very strongly, see, as it goes down, it gets more selfish, more self-centered, more trying to hold on to its own, I, my, me, mine. As that goes down, if it's very evil, then we go to an astral plane for a while. We don't stay there very long. It's not like we go to an eternal hell. Master said, most people create their own hell. Why does God have to send you anywhere? <laughs> but if our consciousness is high, then we go to a high astral plane. But if we have still desires that can only be fulfilled on the physical plane, it's hard to get a good cup of cappuccino. Sorry, Damodar. Um, he's Italian, so where they really do have good cappuccinos, I'll, I'll say that. Um, if, if that's our consciousness, um, then, then that's 
that'll draw us back. We had a, a man here who smoked and drank coffee, and he was a good devotee, but nonetheless, he, he had those two habits. He said, I gotta try to get rid of these because I'm gonna be drawn back the day after I die <laughs> into the body of a mother who smokes and drinks coffee if I'm still addicted to these things. And so if we, have, if we die with desires that can only be fulfilled on the physical plane, then we get to fulfill those desires. We just don't get to stay on the astral plane and fulfill them. We have to get back into a baby and the diapers and the growing up and the high school. And I, for one, want to get out of that cycle. I imagine you do too. So the breath, the physical breath, is accompanied by the, the prana is accompanied by the physical breath. And so obviously, the breath is much easier to get our hands on, to perceive, than is the prana in the, in the, in the pingala. And so one of the aspects of virtually all meditative arts is to work with the breath. Not because it's, I don't know, kind of a handy thing. It's because of this cycle. And I'll just say, and as we calm those two, the cycle of the breath and the prana, the mind, which is disturbed when that movement is too, too powerful or too active and becomes calm and inward as it calms down. So what happens if you are walking down, I don't know, a corridor, let's say it's night and you're walking down here and one of your friends, who may not remain a friend after this, is hiding and you're walking along and they jump out and say, boo! What do you do? <gasps> the first thing you do is you inhale. You, you, you're trying to get that energy and then your breath is rapid for a while, meaning that your prana is disturbed. And so calm your mind if you want to pray. They could have added calm your breath if you want to pray. And that's why we have virtually all of our techniques work with the breath. And virtually all meditation techniques start with that. You know, one of the things that's become quite popular in America is mindfulness meditation. Probably more people do that than any other form. The essence of that, it starts with watching your breath and becoming mindful of your thoughts meaning that you're actually aware of what you're thinking, what you're doing. We may think I'm aware, but you aren't aware. You're sitting in the seat. When is the last time you thought of your posture sitting in the seat? You know, you aren't aware of your posture. You aren't. When is the last time you thought you were breathing? That's going on automatically. We aren't aware of it. And so one of the things that we do is to bring into our conscious awareness, these internal processes, which if we can get them under our control, are going to lead to the interiorization and upward flow of the prana, which otherwise goes down. Now a master has that control and has the prana completely under control. Master said that 
he could bring his energy from the medulla to the point between the eyebrows and just hold it there. He said, when I'm giving an interview with someone, for instance, my body below, below my medulla is like paralyzed. I don't need it. So I just bring my consciousness here. Well, that's nice if we could do it. But we're trying to do it. That's the thing. We're devotees. We're spiritual seekers. And so we're working on this process. So the masters come along and they say, well, if you're working on it, if you want to work on it, then I'll give you some techniques to do that. So master said, well, let's start. You know, the breath, that's one way to work on it. So I'll give you a technique for that. We'll call it Hong Saw. And so Hong Saw, we watch the breath and we use a mantra along with that Hong as the breath comes in or as the energy rises and Saw as it goes down. It's a Bija mantra meant specifically to calm down that movement. But the translation outwardly is I am that affirms and then he you relax. I am he. Hong Sa. Hong Sa. But you concentrate not in the, you can do it in the spine, but the way we normally do it is we concentrate here, which is very close to the spiritual eye. And that deep concentration on the breath coming in and going out, coming in and going out, that will bring us into a deeper state and bring us into control over the thought processes. But Master says, well, I'll give you another technique. I'll give you energization. And if he only said, okay, here's energization. You stand here and you send your prana to various parts of your body. So send your prana first to your toes. Who would, first of all, understand and practice that, and who would stay with it. So he says, I'll give you a more outward way of doing that. Tense and relax those body parts. But tensing and relaxing is just in order to get you kind of aware of what you're doing and the real essence of pranayamic energization is to concentrate on sending the energy when you tense your fists and forearm to concentrate on sending the energy there and then withdrawing it. And he said, tense with will, relax and feel. And so what is that doing? We're working with the prana. We're bringing that prana under our control so that as we sit to meditate, we have the ability or we're already in the process of learning how to control that, to interiorize it, and to bring it up. And then, of course, Kriya is the highest of this triad because Kriya, soon after you begin the practice of your Kriya in a daily meditation, you first concentrate on the breath for the first two or three, just as you would with Hong Sa, or the breath or the flow of energy and energization. But then 
the real practice of Kriya is to forget the breath and concentrate on the flow of prana up and down. So we're trying to bring that prana under control of our mind. And as we do that, then the energy first begins to calm down. That's why longer in a meditation, probably all of you have experienced that in a longer, deeper meditation, your mind is calmer later on because it has been being withdrawn and being focused. And so with that flow, it gets calmer. And so the breath comes under your control, the prana comes under your control, and then the mind comes under your control. And that, in essence, is the inward path. Now, Master said that meditation was deep concentration on God or on one of the aspects of God. Well, energy is one of the aspects of God. Light, where you were concentrating, is one of the aspects of God. Sound of Om, sound is one of the aspects. Any of those, but here we're talking about the importance of deep concentration. I want to read something from a little quote from Master that said, remember in our Sunday service, every week we repeat the words of Christ, thou shalt love thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. Heart means our desires, mind is consciousness, soul is who we really are, and strength is prana. Strength is, so we need to bring that under control. So here Master is saying, to love God with all your mind means to give him 100% of your attention when you meditate, and to think of him in all you do. You must own your mind. That is, you must be able to govern your thoughts. You cannot give your mind to God unless it belongs to you. Learn concentration. Bring your mind under control. Practice that control in meditation. And then keep your meditative consciousness of God's presence during all your activities. So, that's the summation of the inward path. So, we have to bring our energy under control in order to bring our mind under control. So now we come to the question of concentration and deep concentration. That's hard for people because we have not yet tamed this wild horse of the mind. It's not just, it's hard. Krishna, uh, Arjuna complains to Krishna about this. He said, the mind is harder to control than the wind. How am I going to control the wind? Well, the spiritual interpretation, the mind is harder to control than the breath. So start with the breath. Start with these techniques that we have. Start with the breath and then Kriya, the prana, and those two together will help us control the, the mind. But we have to work on concentrating more deeply. And, you know, there isn't a whole lot in this whole dynamic that we have much control over. You know, it's 
we can't control the movement of prana up and down. We can't really control the breath, stop the breath. If we try to do that, the medulla will black us out and start the breath over again. So you can't, you can't kill yourself by trying to hold your breath um, because it's, it's automatic. So you don't really have control over that. But we have some control over the ability to concentrate. And so as we meditate, we need to work on that aspect. So if you're doing Hong Sa and your mind is, or you're somewhere in there, you're saying Hong Sa, and somewhere out here you're breathing, but what you're really doing is thinking about how you're gonna get back at that person who scared you on the path last night. <laughs> How mindful are you of what you're doing? How concentrated? So as you're doing Hong Sa, you know, the teaching is every time your mind wanders to bring it back. But if you don't have it very stable, I would suggest this. Try, if you find your mind wandering, try to do just 12 Hong Sa's, 12 breath in, breath out. Hong, saw. Try to do just 12, but really concentrate on that 12. And then if you can get to 12, then go on. But if you find your mind has gotten up to three, doing really, really well, I've gotten to three, and then you're thinking not about Hong saw, you're thinking about, well, I'm already at three. <laughs> I'm doing really well here then you have to say, okay, let's start again, you know? So work to bring your mind under concentration. We, a couple of months ago, saw a wonderful video, uh, and I don't have a link to it, but you could probably find it. Anyway, it was about a, a monk, Buddhist monk. Well, he's not a monk anymore. Um, but he said he meditates 50 times a day. And then he explained that he, I think from Thailand, he was in the most rigorous of all of the monasteries in Thailand. And they had, he was there for seven or eight years, something like that. And they had a very, very strict regime where everything that they did was highly controlled. You get up at a certain time, you wash in a certain way, you dress in a certain everything was highly controlled. But the whole purpose of it was to get you to deeply concentrate on every act that you did so that you brought complete mindfulness to everything that, that you did throughout the day. And so he said, I learned how to do that in this strict environment. And now I meditate 50 times a day by if I'm looking at a flower, I bring total concentration to the looking at the flower. That's pretty close to deep meditation on God or when beauty is, you know. So anyway, work on this deep concentration because that's what we can work on in order to, um, that's the part that we can actually get a hold of. Obviously, everything else we have to work on breath, working with the breath. 
We have to work on working with the prana and on the mind and concentrating. Those three work together. And if we can do that, then we'll go deeper. And by concentrating here, especially after the outer practices, it creates that magnetism at this point that draws the kundalini up. So I'll just end by saying that we talk about the meditative arts, but we need to take, just as Master said, to take that, I'll read that last sentence again, bring your mind under control, practice that control in meditation, and then keep your meditative consciousness of God's presence during all your activities. So the other part is to keep the energy, remember what we're trying to do, bring the energy in and up and keep it up. That's why we have techniques to work with the higher three chakras because um, they're less, I don't know, they're less like tar babies that grab onto our, to our outward flow. We want to keep it up. But, so do some practices as well as meditation. Work during the day to keep your energy interiorized and uplifted. And you can do chanting. I should start with do what we were talking about. Try to feel that everyone is your own brother and sister and expand your sympathies. Expand your sense of who you are to include everyone. Serve people. Both of those keep the mind, the energy uplifted. But you can also chant inwardly. It's a very, very good practice. Some paths, that's essentially their practice, is to do inner mantra or inner chanting. But don't just do it without any concentration. Do it and try to keep your energy here. You can just keep your energy here. At one point, a few years ago, I gave the technique of taking your finger, placing it at the spiritual eye for 15 seconds, and constant feeling and concentrating on the energy at that point. Then you put it down and just feel that your energy is centered there and you're still able to carry on your activities. So all of these things, but try in your daily living not to, not to purposely poke holes in the bucket of your milk of peace by getting too involved in things that are, are strong downward attractants. Don't get involved in things that make you angry or that create desires or that get you into power struggles with other people. These are the three lower chakras. Keep your energy up. And when you find the tendency to not do that, then break those habits and get into the habit of living your life as a Kriya Yogi or living your life with the inward path, whether you're active or still. I'll just end this. You know, I, we mentioned that um, Prem Shanti and Om Prakash put out this a daily calendar of the autobiography. This was today's, so it was too, too apropos not to read. St. Paul knew Kriya Yoga, 
or a technique very similar to it, by which he could switch life currents to and from the senses. He was therefore able to say, Verily, I protest by our rejoicing, which I have in Christ, I die daily. By daily withdrawing his bodily life force, he united it by yoga union with the rejoicing or eternal bliss of the Christ consciousness. In that felicitous state, he was consciously aware of being dead to the delusory, delusive sensory world of Maya. It's like Master sent that for all of us today, and I thought I should share it. Now we'll, last part of the last class, um, we'll be talking about discipleship as a way to self-realization. And in our first class on Monday, we talked about following in the footsteps of Master what he has created, both outwardly as a work in the world and also what he has given to humanity, values, techniques. But we also, we, we can follow in his footsteps of discipleship. We mentioned earlier that if nothing else, the autobiography of a yogi is a handbook of discipleship. Story after story of the guru-disciple relationship and how to work with it. And there's, it's a never-ending source of inspiration. But so let's look at Master's discipleship and see how we can follow. Granted, he was an avatar. Granted, his guru was an avatar. But nevertheless, the principles of discipleship don't change. You could be the merest beginner on the spiritual path or an enlightened being. But the relationship, as Sri Yukteswar and Master demonstrated, is always one of self-offering and reverence, no matter what state you've attained. And so let's look at different aspects of Master's discipleship and how they can refine and uplift our own discipleship. First of all, let's start with the concept of how do we choose a guru? Well, this is a rhetorical question. We don't choose a guru. The guru chooses us. And we see this demonstrated in many beautiful stories, both in the autobiography of a yogi and in Swamiji's autobiography, The New Path. Of course, in autobiography, we know the master's early struggles as he, as he presents it. You know, you always have to have the filter that he was, he was living that drama for our benefit. He wasn't really touched by it. But he, he, he was as a young man, always seeking, even from adolescence, from childhood, seeking God, seeking a teacher, looking for how he could find his path to God. And then he graduates miraculously from high school. And he goes to an ashram in Benares, the ancient city of Kashi. And while there, he's not happy, as we all know the story in, in his circumstances in the ashram. He wants to meditate. And there, that ashram is more a path of outward service. So one day, he's meditating. He's up in a little room. And there's tension and negativity building among the other 
uh, monks and residents of the ashram. And he said, I just prayed to God till my heart would burst. Show me the way to find you. And then there was a call. Makundu, you're wanted downstairs. You have to go on some errands. So he dries his tears and cleans his, as he put it, his tear-swollen face. And he goes down with this other young monk. And they're walking in the marketplace of Benares and carrying their bundles that they've purchased. And then what happens? Moment out of time, changing all of our lives. He turns and looks down a small lane and there is a, a, a swami standing, a man standing in the ochre robes of a swami, looking at him very penetratingly. And Master said, anciently familiar he seemed to me. And I was drawn, but then what happens? This is exactly what happens, happened in my life, and I'll tell you that in a moment. He said, my doubts began assailing me. And I thought, this, you're mistaking this sadhu for someone you know. Keep going. But the miracle then, he tries to walk away, and his feet are paralyzed. He can't move. When he turns to go back to that serpentine lane, he can move. And he keeps you know, being a, uh, someone very interested in all aspects of life. He tries it a little bit. He tries walking away from his guru, can't do it. Tries, and then he rushes, and he falls at Sri Yukteswar's feet. Who chose who? Sri Yukteswar says to him, my own, you have come to me. How many years, years I have waited for you to come. I give you my unconditional love. And this is our own story, too. And this was echoed, as we know, in Swamiji's life, uh, yet very parallel in many ways. A young man, very unhappy with the world as he found it, searching and searching, but not knowing how he could possibly find truth. And he's about to go, uh, he has a a berth on a merchant marine ship to go down to South America. And, but he just says, well, I'll go into this bookstore in New York, Doubleday Duran. For those of you who have seen the movie The Path, it's so or The Answer, it's so beautifully depicted there. And he goes in, and he's looking at all these books on Indian philosophy. And there's one, Autobiography of a Yogi. And he takes it off the shelf, and he looks at the picture, and he was so drawn to that face, anciently familiar. But then he opens the book, and it says, dedicated to Luther Burbank, an American saint. Doubts assailed him. He said, a saint in America, impossible. Puts the book back on the shelf. Same thing happens. Starts to walk down Fifth Avenue. Can't move away from the bookstore. When he turns, and he runs back and purchases that book, reads it from cover to cover, takes the next bus out to Los Angeles and meets Yogananda. First words, I want to be your disciple. And Master says to him, I give you my unconditional love. Do you give me yours? And so it's the same story. I know in my own life, I had come to Ananda the summer of 1969. Uh, had read autobiography, taught 
meditation by Swamiji and loved it. But then I thought the end of the summer came and I, there wasn't housing there. I wasn't brave enough to live, uh, continue living in my sleeping bag in a tree house for the winter. And so I thought, well, I'll go back to where doubts assailed me. Is this really what you want to do for the rest of your life? I'm not so sure. And so I thought, well, I had, I graduated um, from University of Wisconsin, Madison, and I thought, and I had kind of hedged my bets. I thought, I'll come to Ananda, but then when the fall comes, I have a job in Madison, I have an apartment, I have friends, I can go back. So I went back, whew, on with my life. What happened? Job fell through, apartment fell through, friends all moved away, I had nothing. It was like God was saying, you can't walk in that direction. I've already called you. You have to continue because this isn't just about your attention. There is a larger cycle of so many lifetimes that you've been seeking and you forgot, just as Master didn't remember, just as Lahiri Mahashai, when Babaji called him to the cave in Naranikat, he said, don't you remember Lahiri? No, sir. I don't remember this cave. I don't remember this meditation asan. And he touched him. And then it came flood the memories of past lives at the guru's feet. That's where we all are. And Master shows us we have to remember. Remember, don't let the doubts assail you. Am I good enough to be on the spiritual path? Do I have other desires still? Do I have other interests still? Be that as it may, follow the guru just as, as Master did, just as Swamiji did, just as so many of my guru bhais here at Ananda who came in those first years, 1969, 1970, as they have done. So then the next point is, what, does, what did Sri bring to master? And by extension, what did he bring to all of us? Well, first of all, they bring, Sri Teshwar gave master the teachings. As Jyotish explained so clearly, the teachings of meditation and yoga and how to interiorize the mind, he gave them all of that. He also gave him the teachings, the, the deeper meaning of the scriptures, which we are still drawing the richness of that through uh, Master's commentaries and Swami's writings on the Bible and the Gita and Rubaiyat of Omar Chayam. All that was from Sri Teshwar. The teachings, the teachings. But as well as the teachings, and most important is the training. The training on how to, one, live a balanced life. Sri Teshwar stressed this very much, combining Western practicality and efficiency and Eastern deep spiritual uh, motivation practices. And so the training of living a balanced life, organized, efficient, but more than that, the training, that's the most outward circle of it. The real training that Sri Teshwar gave with some brutality to master was the training on overcoming the limitations and the identification with the ego. 
And this is what the guru gives us, even if he's not in the body. It's going on all the time. Understand that every time a test comes to you, that it's pushing you beyond your comfort zone. Where is that coming from? Is it random? It's not random. It's the guru training you. And Sri Yukteswar was, uh, he was unrelenting. He was humiliating. He was devastating to Master. But Master says, and again, this is from our little calendar. Oh, here, another quote is here. Uh, This flattening treatment was hard to endure, but my resolve was to allow Sri Yukteswar to iron out each of my psychological kinks. As he labored under this titanic transformation, I shook many times under the weight of his disciplinary hammer. This is what we give to the guru. We give him the right to do that. And if we say, oh, no, uh, not that. You know, you can take everything away, but not that. Swami used to love to quote or talk about the scene. Uh, He loved the movie Around the World in 80 Days. Uh, when Phineas Fogg, you know, goes around the world. It's a fun movie, uh, James Ver- Jules Verne. But there was one scene where it's a very last leg and Phineas Fogg buys a steamship to cross the Atlantic from New York back to England. And they want to go faster and faster, so they start burning the ship, you know. They take off the, the railing and the flooring and the decks and to go faster and faster. And finally there's this... Uh, figurehead on the mast on the uh, prow of the ship and it's this late you know how they do in those old wooden ships it's a lady and so Phineas Fox says okay take her and uh, the captain says not Henrietta <laughs> and Swami he really quoted that scene a lot because there's always something there's always something okay take away burn the decks you know it's fine but not that but that's what Master's discipleship shows to Sri Yukteswar, and he did it in the extreme. Sri Yukteswar said, I am very stern in my discipline. You will be much kinder. And luckily for us, because, (laughs) and he said, my methods would not stand the test of time in the West. People are not ready for them. But he said, gentle love is also approach to self-realization, the training of the guru. And so we do, it is easier for us in a way, but it's also to the extent that we want to get in there and say, bring it on, bring it on. I'm not afraid anymore. I don't want to cling to anything. Master, as much as you pile on my plate, I'll deal with it. And the more we can do this, the more that transformation happens. We have to get rid of all resistance to the training of the guru. And that's not easy. And it's not done overnight because we're afraid. Someone submitted a question and said, well, if we get rid of the ego, then we, do we lose our sense of self-worth? And because we, no, it's the opposite. Because our self-worth is not the ego. Master tells a delightful story in one of his uh, lessons, I believe it is, where uh, the lion who thought he was a lamb. You know that story? So the mother lion uh, gives birth to a little cub, and then some hunters chase her away, and she has to abandon this newborn little lion cub. And the lion, you know, just 
barely able to stand, and then a flock of sheep come by. And so he follows along with them, and he grows up with the sheep. And he, when he's little, he leaps, bounces around like the little lambs, and goes, bah, bah, and has a little mommy sheep that feeds him. And he grows up this way, but he never knows. He thinks he's a sheep. And then one day, another lion is prowling and going to take a lunch break from the sheep. And he sees this lion there with all the other sheep, a male lion with a big mane. And he's going, bah, bah. And he runs up to the lion. He said, what are you doing? This is the guru lion. What are you doing? And he said, and he said, don't kill me. Please don't kill me. And he drags him and he, put, he shows him in a pond, a lake, his reflection, which he's never seen. Well, this is our soul and our ego. We get born and we forget that we're lions of God. And we go, oh, I'm a little ego and this hurts and they said that and, and this person wants my money and blah, 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 blah. Always complaining. <laughs> Always complaining. But we don't remember that's not who we are. So no, we don't lose a sense of self-esteem if we begin dissolving the ego. We get it. We get a self of true, a sense of true self with a capital S, esteem. And what is that? Hey, I'm just a part of God. I'm really nothing more than that, but I'm a part of everything. And I am everything. And I have everything. But we have to get rid of the resistances. I love to share the story of what we call Maria's mantra. Maria Warner was Devarshi's wife. And she battled cancer for a good 10 years. It, it would, she would have treatment and surgery and be in remission for a while. Then it would come back. And, but she was such a brave person. And she never complained. She never complained. She, would, she and David, she were the ones that started the Ananda website. Even when she was going through all this, she'd come into the office. And she was so cute. She was a little Russian lady. And she would be walking into the office, and she'd wave, and she said, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> but just that resolve. And then at the very end, one weekend, they went to Dallas, actually, to do a program there. And she began having this tremendous headache and debilitating. And she said to Dave, she, it's in my brain now. They flew back, and within a day or two, she couldn't walk anymore. It was just very quick. And she, Dave, she was quite shaken. They were dear friends, dear spiritual friends with each other. And he was wheeling her in to get an MRI. And he was shaking and much more upset than she was. And she looked up at him and she said, what has become Maria's mantra or a motto for discipleship? She said, detach yourself, control the reactive process, and live the teachings. He willed her in to get an MRI. And she died a month or so after that. But remember that. That's the mantra of a true disciple. Did whatever happens, not, oh, poor me, why did this happen to me? Detach yourself. Control the reactive process. This is from God. And live the teachings that our guru has given us. So this is the training that the guru gives. And it's the most important training we can get in our lives. Nothing else that comes anywhere near the value of that training of the guru. 
And then, so teachings, the guru brings us teachings. He brings us training. But he also brings transformation, the three T's, teaching, training, transformation. And how does this happen? Because of the magnetic resonance between the, who, what the guru is, who he is, and the disciple. It's not random. It isn't, oh, well, he's my guru and he, she's your guru. It's, it's something that was, or the relationship between guru and disciple was ordained from the moment the soul emerged from oneness with God as a spark of individuality. And so this master said when he went to Sri Yukteswar's ashram, um, and this was wonderful too, he, he, first Sri Yukteswar asked him, do you give me, first he said, I give you my unconditional love. And then he said, do you give me your unconditional obedience? And what did Master say? Again, you, you have to love his, his spunkiness. He said, on one condition, <laughs> that you promise me to reveal God to me. And then he says in autobiography, and an hour-long verbal tussle ensued. <laughs> but we need to own that. We need to relate to the guru in that same way. I have come, we have come, for your transformation, Master. You, I will not give up until you promise you're going to bring me to God. So we have to be that demanding of him, not, well, you know, maybe someday I'll be able to meditate. And No, we have to say, you owe me. This is the essence of that relationship, bringing the soul to freedom. And we have to demand nothing less of the guru because he, has the, he or she has the power to transform us, to transfigure us, to release us from the ego. Master said that, then that same day, I believe it was the next day after he came to the ashram, Sri Teshwar initiated him into Kriya. He said, I had already received Kriya from my father as a disciple of Lahiri Mahashaya, from my Sanskrit um, tutor, Swami Kebalananda. But he said, at Master's touch, at Sri Teshwar's touch, a transforming power flowed to me and released my ability to get the full realization of Kriya. So remember that. Some of you will be taking Kriya for the first time. Some of you have had it for many years. But it's the touch of the guru that releases the power of Kriya. And so, yes, do the techniques. Do them as well as you can with as much self-offering and concentration as you can. But then always say, Master, this is your gift to me, and I can't do it without your grace. And so that power of the guru, that transforming power, that we have to, to really receive that power, we have to give up all resistance. We have to say, I want to change. And just as when Swamiji first met Master, remember it's, again, depicted in the movie The Answer, he comes, finally kneels at his feet at the Hollywood church. And, you know, there's a lovely little aside here. When the uh, director, Pavan Kaul, who did the answer, 
was, uh, was first kind of getting conceptual designs for the interior sets. And he wanted to know what did the, he couldn't film in the Hollywood church, but he wanted to know what did the room look like where Swami first met Master. And, you know, he kind of inquired and they said, oh, no, no, you can't go in there, you can't go in there. Okay, we'll accept that. But Master had other plans. And so Pavan went there, Pavan and uh, the producer Kavita, and they went into Hollywood Church, I think it was a Sunday afternoon, and there was nobody there. It was totally empty. The only person there was an old janitor. And they said, can we go into that back interview room? Oh, sure, come on in, come on in. And so they couldn't film there, but they knew what it looked like, so they could create it for the movie. So God has other plans that man disposes, God, no, man proposes, God disposes. So, but then he knelt there and Master accepted him, asked him for his unconditional love, his unconditional obedience, and then he put his arm forward, Master did, and he touched Swami over the heart. And Swami said, I could see his arm vibrating. There was so much energy flowing out of it. He said, I was so unprepared for what the Master had to give. Consciously, I couldn't feel anything. But from that moment onward, my life was changed. My consciousness was changed. So remember, these aren't just stories that happen to other people. These are the footsteps of the masters that we have to follow. Because there's only, the path of discipleship is singular. It isn't many, many different paths in a certain sense although it's also very individual because each of us has a different path to walk according to our own karma. I, I've shared this before, but it was a remarkable um, comment that Swamiji made once. It was after a Kriya initiation in the early years up at the meditation retreat, and we all went up and got the blessing during the Kriya initiation. And then afterwards, a few of us were standing around Swamiji, and he said, I had a very, Swamiji said, I had a very interesting experience as I blessed each one of you. I felt your, you, each one of you, your unique path to self-realization, to finding God. And it was different from, for every single one of us. So you may look at somebody and say, oh, they're a teacher. OK, that's the way to self-realization. You may look at somebody and they're a, a doctor working, or a nurse working selflessly in a clinic, think, oh, that's the path to self-realization. That's their karma. That's all it is. So the path, it's sort of paradoxical, because the path of discipleship, it's it's essentially God coming in an enlightened being, working to dissolve the resistances and blocks of the ego. But for each one of us, the guru will work in different ways. In the early years of Ananda, sometimes I would see people who, everything always went easy for them. And it wasn't like that for me so much. And I thought, why, why? But you know what? Those people, to a person, none of them stayed because it was easy, because they weren't really working to dissolve the ego. And so it was sort of a fun summer camp kind of experience. But 
if difficulties come, don't think that the guru isn't, doesn't notice or isn't pleased with you. Quite the opposite. The more pleased he is with you, the more he will put on your plate because he knows you can handle it. So it's a beautiful thing. And, and I feel so honored as I look at, share my lives with all of you sitting in the room and many, many who, don't, who aren't here, and I see your victories. Not easy victories, not easy won victories, but victories nonetheless. And I draw strength and inspiration from many, many of you, as we all do. It isn't just uh, a random happening. So in conclusion, what, how can we follow in Master's discipleship most effectively? First of all, with that deep resolution to dissolve the ego and to demand of the guru, I came for this. Maybe I didn't know it. Maybe I took a lot of detours, but this is what I came for. And I demand that you reveal God to me. He likes that. And he will respond. Don't be shy. With someone like Master, we don't need to be shy. He's a warrior of God. William the Conqueror, Arjuna, Alfonso. Warrior in many lifetimes. Match his strength with yours to the extent you can. But match your sincerity and your commitment with his. So give yourself into the process. The second thing how we can match it is to help to further the movement that he brought into the world, this movement of self-realization and world brotherhood communities. Whether you live here or not, support it in ways that you can and create, even with a few friends, create centers that help share this vibration. Because we can, the reason Ananda Village and all of our communities in the world have the spiritual vibrancy that they do is because the deep self-effort, spiritual self-effort and sincerity of the people living there. You can't impose higher consciousness from the outside. And I'm going to read again from the calendar. This was a few days ago, yesterday, February 6th. Master says, this is towards the end of the first edition. Far into the night, my dear friend, Dr. Lewis, the first Kriya Yoga in America, discussed with me the need for world colonies founded on a spiritual basis the ills attributed to an anthropomorphic abstraction called society, but may be laid more realistically at the door of every man. Utopia must spring in the private bosom before it can flower in civic virtue. Man is a soul, not an institution. His inner reforms alone can lend permanence to outer ones. By stress on spiritual values, self-realization, a colony exemplifying world brotherhood is empowered to send inspiring vibrations far beyond its locale. I'll read that last sentence. By stress on spiritual values, 
self-realization, a colony exemplifying world brotherhood is empowered to send inspiring vibrations far beyond its locale. And that's true of Ananda's work worldwide. We have centers of light. We have cities of light. There will be many, many more. In the world we live in today, it's a time of moral confusion, of values being ignored and denigrated, of civility being cast to the wind. But remember that the light and the darkness are always struggling for ascendancy. One sincere prayer in the solitude of your own heart has more power than all the ranting and raving of politicians. We need to develop virtue in the private heart, and the world needs it very much now, very much. I, don't think, I know certainly for myself, and I think for many of us, I don't rest easy looking at what's going on in the world. It's distressing and disturbing. But what can I do? I can offer all that I have more completely, more purely, more willingly, more unreservedly to service of God and Guru. This is important, and I ask you and encourage you to join me. I know you do, but to join me more, more wholeheartedly in that effort. And so finally, master's discipleship, it infuses, it shows the way, but never forget, it infuses our discipleship with that power that was between he and Sri Akteshwar, between master and Swamiji. The, the relationships of these great ones infuse our own discipleship if we ask them with their power, with their grace, and with the ability to achieve self-realization. This is the gift of the guru. We are their disciples. Let's be the most perfect examples of following the path of discipleship to achieve self-realization that we are capable of. Thank you. So Jyotish and I just will cl close now. I think um, there were some questions submitted. We kind of integrated them into the talk, so we won't take special time. So we want to thank you for the week, for being such a willing and open and attentive group of people. The beautiful teachings that we have won't be expressed unless there are people wanting to receive them. And so we thank you for your part in this beautiful little drama of the last five days. And those of you who are taking Kriya this evening, try to draw the blessings clearly of God and Guru into your own Kriya practice, but try to also consciously draw the grace of Kriya and the blessings of our lineage into the world. So we'll take a short break and then begin meditating at 12. But do keep quiet in the sanctuary.